choose your princess wisely. A good omens multi voice podfic written by the wolf. Chapter six Rescue the Chalice of Redemption It's fine, Crowley tells himself as Aziraphale sweetly holds out his arm, hand chivalrously palmed on, for him to use to crawl up to what's becoming his usual sprawl on the hero's shoulders. And that, he thinks, should perhaps have been the first clue that he's a bit smitten. How quickly he became unselfconsciously comfortable draping himself all over the human's everything. He certainly doesn't have any inclination to treat Anathema or Newt or any other of his loose circle of acquaintances like a cuddly toy. All he has to do he reasons with himself as Aziraphale calls out a farewell to Anathema and steps out onto the road, is find himself a castle. Maybe good old Prince Bediais will be willing to consider a timeshare. His fiancée is loaded. Crowley can probably convince them to buy a summer palace. Antony? Aziraphale says in the sort of carefully cheerful way that means he's anxious about what he's about to say. I've never been to the estate we're visiting today, but I do know it's a reasonable carriage ride from, well, my family's estate. I thought perhaps... He trails off with an airy wave. Crowley catalogues the hunch to the hero's shoulders he can feel beneath his scales. The quick shortening of his strides the twitchy half-smile that keeps wincing onto his face and resigns himself to the feeling of protective ire that wants to swell up. Hmm, they'll want us to stay a while, socialize, he points out. Might slow us down more than it saves us time. He fights to keep his tone believably nonchalant even as he's tempted to slather on some persuasively leading inflections. Maybe a bit of a wheedle. You said there's a village near your estate, yeah? We could pop in there and hire a carriage. Aziraphale shakes his head decisively. Word we get back to Uriel, and I wouldn't hear the end of it. He spares Crowley a baldly unconvincing grin. Think of it as an opportunity. Depending on who's home, you'll have the chance to meet some of your prospective spouses in person. It should be worrying that his first instinct is to protest that he doesn't have any interest in marrying anyone other than a zero fear. As it stands, he's far enough into his acceptance spiral that he's able to fatalistically anticipate that if he tried, he'd come across far too sincere for comfort. He settles for a vague noise that he let Aziraphale interpret as he will. Well, then it's decided, Aziraphale says, voice too pitchy to pull off the happy satisfaction he's desperately trying to telegraph. Crowley doesn't dignify the sad attempt with a response. The estate, when they arrive, is unambiguously an estate possibly with a capital E. Aziraphale seems to be taking far more time than is strictly called for sorting himself out after the use of the boots, 
pushing their standing about at the end of the wide path leading up to the main entrance of the main structure, dangerously close to full-on loitering. What's its name? Crowley asks, when he can form words around the nauseated royal of his guts. Sorry? The estate. It's got a name, doesn't it? He presses. Places this big do. Ah, well, not officially, but Sandalfon keeps trying to make Haven a thing. As in the name of the region? The region the estate is located in? Aziraphale sighs. You can't have a haven without a haven, he quotes. At Crowley's blank stare, he elaborates. You see, he made this uh, wordplay joke one time that Gabriel found hilarious, and now it's become an unfortunate series. Crowley pokes him in the cheek with the tip of his tail. Are you trying to set me up with a man who has a catchphrase? Aziraphale makes a half-hearted swat at his tail, but... Tellingly doesn't disagree. He's looking, in fact, a bit grey around the edges. I'm pretty sure that constitutes an attack on the crown, he says, and feels a disgustingly soppy thrill when the corner of Aziraphale's mouth twitches up. He'd follow it up with another crack about Aziraphale trying to fleece him out of a good deal, but in light of his un fortunate assault of self-discovery, it feels a bit too dramatically ironic, even for him. Luckily, either the teasing or whatever internal bucking up Aziraphale was undergoing has done the trick, and the hero squares his shoulders and walks purposefully up the drive. They are welcomed warmly by the staff, who greet Crowley with a sort of unfazed, graceful protocol that Crowley hasn't seen performed half so well at some literal, actual courts. He gives regal nods in acknowledgement with increasing alarm as he mentally tallies the number of people performing various duties just in the short walk from the grand entrance to one of the family parlors. Once again, he is grateful for his serpenty flat effect that lets him boggle without restraint at the spotless opulence that's so understated it's a declaration. The walls and wood floors are gleaming white, with plush white rugs with just a hint of tasteful gold patterning. A hallway might only have one small ornamented pedestal to give it character. But the materials and artifacts could feed several small villagers for a year. They are led to a room off an out-of-the-way corridor. Here you are, Your Highness, Master Zeraphil, the woman serving as their guide says, opening the door wide and stepping back for them to enter. I'll have Chef send up some refreshments while the carriage is ready for you. Thank you, Ms. Reed. Aziraphale says with personable warmth that, by this point, Crowley doesn't find surprising. I found that merchant you remembered in London, and I ordered a sample book and a few yards of several different styles to be delivered under your care. Please send my regards to staff. He looks adorably pleased with himself, especially when Miss Reed's pleasantly neutral expression pings the tiniest amount. 
You're too kind, Master Zirafel, she replies stiltedly, flicking the barest glance at where Crowley's boldly staring at her before making a swift exit. What was that about? Crowley asks as they enter the room, which seems to be trying its stems to make up for the lack of colour and clutter in the rest of the house. The space is crammed full of overflowing mahogany bookshelves, colourful rugs and tables laden with brick-a-brick. Aziraphale makes a beeline to the overstuffed windbag chair positioned in front of the fireplace and settles in with a pleased wiggle. Oh, I've embarrassed her, surely, but I didn't want to risk forgetting to find her again before we left. The staff is mad for London fashion but the trip south is too far to keep up with the trends properly. However, since I travel frequently, I try to help where I can. Making them the envy of every other household staff in the area, no doubt. Crowley remarks dryly as he slips down to drape himself over the left arm of the chair and shamelessly crane his neck around to Ogle. Oh, well? Aziraphale trails off sounding like the prospect genuinely hadn't occurred to him. Good God's angel, how do you not get claustrophobic in here? Crowley asks, hooking the upper half of his body on the top corner of the chair to get a better view of some of the titles on the nearest bookshelves. It's cozy, Aziraphale insists, with a fierceness that confirms it must be his personal study parlour thing. Better than that bloody blank hallway. Crowley concedes easily, corkscrewing back down into an elegant slump on the armrest. That much white must be a pain in the ass to keep clean. Some of his coils spill innocently onto the hero's near thigh. Aziraphale still radiating magical warmth, even after the short jaunts using the books. It's taking considerable self-control not to drape wantonly over his lap and bask. Aziraphale appears mollified, though he is giving the encroachment into his personal space a speculative look. Crowley is just wondering if he can get away with imperiously demanding to use the hero's lap as a hot rock, when the door swings open and uniformly boringly suited people streep in like imps from a crack in the earth. Beneath his scales, Crowley feels Aziraphale tense up. Aziraphale! The lead person booms with a smarmy sort of smile that looks convincing until you register how flat the eyes are. I heard you stopped in. Please! He exclaims waving his arms out to present the precise row the eight other men and women have arranged themselves in on either side of him. Introduce us to your betrothed. He concludes with a beaming smile and steps back like he's a final brick slotting itself into a grey and white pall. Crowley's close enough that he can hear the fortifying breath Aziraphale takes before coolly replying. Of course. And turning to regard Crowley with a pleasantly blank expression. And Anthony, may I present my siblings? He says, offering his left arm out with the elbow crooked, palm down. 
It's an oddly formal gesture. And after a beat, Crowley realizes he's trapped a Xerophil on the sea, and the hero is offering him a perch. I would be delighted, he replies in his most dulcet, regal tones, and does his best to exude princely decorum as he rearranges himself on a Xerophil's arm. Aziraphale takes him to the start of the line and makes introductions on the way down. Michael, his husband Daniel, Gabriel, Sandalphon, Jophiel, the twins Raphael and Raguel, Uriel, Haniel. Crowley mentally tucks Aziraphale between Raguel and Uriel in the seventh son slot. On balance, they are a stiff-looking lot, lined up like a firing squad. Jophiel and Raphael aren't quite as neatly pressed as their siblings, the former with a smidge of white paint under his jaw, and the latter looking like he's put his long hair up in a queue about fourteen times today in the course of whatever he's been doing. Hanya, the only woman-identifying member of the brood, and absolutely spoiled baby sister, Xerophil had confided, is the only one who flashes him a genuine-seeming smile as she's introduced. Everyone, may I introduce his majesty, Prince Antony of Hellion. Aziraphale finishes with a perfunctory flourish. May I just say, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you, Gabriel says with a confiding sort of lean forward. We saw your flyer and we just knew we had to do something to help. Oh? Crowley asks, affecting surprise. You've been helping? We sent to Xerophil, Sandalphon says, sounding far too pleased with himself for having admitted to not actually doing anything directly. Well, Aziraphale has certainly been a godsend, Crowley says with passive-aggressive relish. He's been performing adequately, Michael asks, with just the faintest hint of surprise. Not enough to imply he's doubting Crowley's judgment, but there's definite insinuation there, and it makes Crowley's retracted fangs itch. There's no one I'd rather have helping me complete this quest. He very consciously doesn't hiss. And as much of a pleasure as it might be to linger, I'm sure you'll understand how keen I am to see this through. As if he'd summoned her, Miss Reed says clearly from the door. Your Majesty, Master Zerophil, the carriage is ready. I took the liberty of having Chef pack up a meal for travel. Excellent, Crowley declares. Shall we? He asks tilting his head up and doing his best to project regal adoration as he gazes up at Aziraphale's pale, distant expression. When Aziraphale looks down at him, Crowley discreetly squeezes a loop of tail around his forearm in solidarity, which earns him a wan smile. Of course, your highness, Aziraphale says, and the use of the title grates. Please send a message if there's anything we can do to speed you towards a swift curse lifting. Gabriel says, recovering quickly and swinging around to hover at Xerophil's left side with an obsequious smile. 
Crowley flinches back at the unexpected proximity. Gods bless him. Our little brother has been known to dilly-dally. I can't say I've noticed. Crowley replies coldly. Aziraphale doesn't protest or make any polite goodbyes, just marches stiffly toward the door through the gap that his siblings reluctantly open up for them. The whole set of messengers trail awkwardly in their wake to the front of the house, where the open-air, horse-drawn carriage has been pulled up. Aziraphale's backpack and a covered basket Crowley assumes holds the promised provisions are tucked into the corner of the driver's seat. Do not forget, Michael says with too much emphasis, to give our regards to the Dowlings. Of course. Aziraphale says woodenly as he gets settled into the seat and lowers Crowley into the space beside him. Crowley feels his tail twitch as the name twinges familiarly somewhere in his brain, but impatiently shrugs the feeling off in favor of holding himself back from using infernal influences to goose the horses into taking off immediately. And your reports? Gabriel says gamely. Don't forget to send those, and promptly, we want to be kept up to date. Before Aziraphale can agree to that lunacy, Crowley cuts in smoothly. I'm afraid we'll be too busy curse-breaking. Ciao. Aziraphale takes that at his cue to flick the reins to urge the horses into a trot that puts swift distance between them and the house. Good night, Crowley exclaims when he judges they are well out of earshot. Can't speak to the ones who just stood there like numpties, but your eldest brothers are right wankers. Anthony, please, Aziraphale says, voice thready. Yeah, all right, he grumps and decides to give up any pretense and drapes himself propriately across the hero's lap. Scold, he commands as a thin excuse. But Aziraphale doesn't respond and doesn't relax until they've put a solid hour's drive between them and the house. The quiet gives Crowley enough time to wind down from feeling hyper alert to vaguely worried to bored, back to worried for a brief pick and finally mulling over the earlier feeling that he'd recognized the name of the family whose estate they were heading toward. What was the name of this family again? He croaks out, embracing the feeling of dread like an old frenemy. The Dowlings, old friends of Michael's, though I've never had occasion to visit them at their own estate. Aziraphale says quietly, finally sounding a bit less brittle around the edges. Do you know them? Crowley holds in a hysterical cackle. Only by reputation. The Dowlings aren't at home when they arrive, but Aziraphale had written ahead and arranged for them to take the chalice in their possession out on loan. They are greeted by the head housekeeper, who informs them the artifact is on display at the center of an ornamental hedge maze in the gardens. They couldn't have fetched it in for us? Prince Anthony asks, affronted, as they make their way down the back terrace. 
At least he had the good grace to wait until the staff were out of earshot to complain. The maze makes it a proper quest. Aziraphale explains as he trudges across the meticulously evenly shorn lawn towards the entrance of the maze. Oh, and your friend hauling that mirror out of a cupboard in exchange for a bit of babysitting was all right. The prince shoots back. Instead of playing the role of a scarf, he's ruthlessly wrapped himself in a snug corkscrew up the length of Aziraphale's left arm leaving only a single length of tail draped over his shoulders like the world's most inconvenient stole. It puts his head on level with Aziraphale's right ear for once, which is a little disconcerting both in placement and for the realization that Aziraphale has become so accustomed to the prince lurking on his left side. It's not even a proper maze. The prince continues in mildly aggrieved tones. How can it make for a proper quest? To be fair, the maze is only about hip height and six meters squared in size, making it easy to discern the proper path to take even from the entrance. It's about the tradition of the thing, Aziraphale insists. It's important honor tradition in a quest, you see, or it can upset the outcome. Says who? Aziraphale just barely remembers not to throw up his besnaked arm in exasperation. Storytellers, the gods, the fae, people who are unaccountably willing to give up priceless artifacts to virtual strangers. Oi, there's no giving up involved. It's always an exchange, right? You said so yourself. You're expected to do something first, the prince points out, predictably choosing to home in on Aziraphale's most sarcastic example. That's not tradition. That's just good business sense. He levels the serpent with what he thinks is his most flattening, disapproving stare, and receives only a saucy tongue flick in response. The cheek. Mr. Aziraphale, calls out an excitable voice from behind them, and Aziraphale turns his head to see the darling son pelting toward them across the lawn. Warlock, he cries back in genuine delight, turning fully to greet the boy as he draws up to an awkward stop, gangly limbs flailing as he half slips on the slick grass. Mrs. Jones said you were here. Mom and Dad didn't want me bothering you, but they aren't here, so I'll do what I like. He pronounces breathlessly, grinning up at Aziraphale fit to burst. Aziraphale sighs and opens his mouth to gently remind Warlock of one's duty to mind one's parents' wishes, but the prince beats him to speaking. You're the heir, then? He asks, leaning close and flicking out a curious tongue. Warlock screws up his nose, obviously baffled by the unexpected attention of a talking snake. Yeah? Who are you? He asks, with all the blunt affront of a child raised more by indifferent luxury than genuine care. Honestly, Aziraphale still doesn't know why the Dowlings didn't choose to adopt a deserving younger relative. 
Then he reminds himself of every interaction he's ever had with Thaddeus and the unavoidable vanity involved in fashioning a blood legacy. This is His Majesty, Prince Antony of Hellion. Aziraphale supplies. Prince Antony, may I present Warlock Dowling, heir apparent of the Dowling estate. Are you the Prince of all Hellion? Warlock asks, sounding reluctantly impressed. Hellion is rather a big region. Uh, no, obviously, Anthony says, sounding a bit defensive, the poor dear. Hellion doesn't have a king. Then what are you the prince of? Warlock demands. Can't say, the princess clipped. Part of my curse. Got a nice castle, though. Very enchanted. Warlock. Aziraphale admonishes. Surely your parents have taught you better than to ask a cursed individual about their circumstances. Their curses often forbid it. Warlock rolls his eyes dramatically. You've taught me, maybe. He protests, but squares a contrite expression the prince's way and mumbles. Sorry. No worries, mate. The princess breezily. Tell me, does this maniac adopt all the children he meets, or just the preteens? Antony. Aziraphale says in despair. Oh, he's always making friends with everyone? Warlock confirms with the glee of someone who considers themselves to be spilling the most embarrassing of secrets. It's like he thinks it's his job or something. He continues blithely, and Aziraphale resolutely doesn't meet the smug gaze he can feel the prince turning on him. Well, it is kind of his job, isn't it? The prince says. Big hero, right? Has to be friendly if he wants to succeed on his quests. He draws out the final S with far too much relish. Aziraphale does spare the prince an irritated look then, not wanting Warlock to get the wrong end of the stick. It's my job to be helpful, he says primly. Sometimes being helpful leads to making a friend. People tend to like helpful people. Like to walk all over them, sure. Anthony quips, but seeming to sense Aziraphale's growing ire, changes tactics. We're supposed to walk the maze, he says to Warlock. Bet you've solved it a hundred times over, though, eh? Warlock scoffs, even as he straightens up at the implied praise. It's not even a proper maze, he protests, to Anthony's obvious delight. I can walk it with my eyes closed. Go on, the prince says, sounding impressed. Aziraphale is struck anew, as he had been the other day during Adam's party, that Anthony really is quite good with children. He's too self-aware not to know the reason. He's as comfortable with Warlock and Adam and the them as he is, has more to do with prolonged exposure than genuine affinity. He finds babies and toddlers adorable, from a safe distance, and young children rather too fey for his comfort. It's not until they reach young adulthood that he finds it more natural to connect. He tells himself it's because by this point they've acquired enough life experiences to make it easier for him to find common ground. 
It absolutely has nothing to do with finding the inevitable anxiety and self-consciousness that seems to plague all teenagers extremely relatable. The Princess Ease is both endearing and inviolable. Warlock puffs up like a proud rooster and proceeds to lead them through the maze, keeping up an easy stream of one-way chatter with Anthony, who alternatively asks appropriately engaged questions and makes indulgent-sounding noises. When they reach the center of the maze, the chalice is resting on a low pedestal. It's a wide, shallow basin made of white veined black marble with fey runes carved all around the thick lip of the rim. It looks like it will be awkward to lift up, never mind carry all the way back to the carriage. Aziraphale, the prince asks in an overly conversational tone that has Aziraphale preemptively despairing over whatever is going to come out of his mouth. Yes, my dear. He sighs. Are the Dowlings using an ancient, powerful artifact from the Night Court as a bird bath? It certainly seems that way. He agrees, noting with some distaste the thin layer of muck resting at the bottom of the water, the surface of which is currently hosting the floating carcass of a beetle. Questing, the prince concludes is wild. Not sure why I haven't done it before. This is, in fact, one of the few times he's deigned to join his mark on the actual legwork, and only because Anathema had made it one of her terms in their contract, citing some claptrap about increasing the potency of the end spell. Only youngest children, or magic users, or seventh sons and daughters can quest. Warlock pipes up helpfully walking up to the pedestal and hoisting himself up by his arms on the edge so he can peer down into the water. Things won't go right otherwise and you'll die, he states casually, and then... Are you really going to marry a snake, Aziraphale? No offense, he says with a quick glance in Anthony's direction. Well, that's not entirely decided. He starts at the same time the prince protests. What sort of gloom and doom nonsense have you been telling him, Angel? Aziraphale flusters. Whenever they visit, Warlock keeps attempting to sneak into my backpack to come with me. Who knows what the holding charms would do to a living creature? And it's not like I'm telling him anything untrue. If you don't have the right qualifications and don't observe the right traditions, questing is dangerous. It's dangerous even when you have everything going for you. The prince rears his head back in a way that somehow conveys incredulity, and Aziraphale rolls his eyes. The first quest was dangerous, just well managed. The mirror and chalice being in possession of families I know is lucky. He emphasizes, even going so far as to gesture to his person with his free arm. Surprisingly, the prince gives ground easily with the little sideways bobble of his head. Yeah, okay, luck. Crowley is recalling that while it's been decidedly lucky for Aziraphale, it's been unquestionably unlucky for Crowley, which he figures balances the whole thing out cosmically. Who's gonna marry the snake if you don't? Warlock asks, unperturbed by their bickering, and now hopping down, 
so he can try to lever one side of the chalice up to get it down. Aziraphale leaps to his side and chivies him out of the way. Oh, my dear boy, you'll break the chalice or your foot or both. Step aside, please. There's a dear. Warlock submits with a groan and goes to stand by the opening that leads back out of the maze. Aziraphale considers him and then looks down to the prince, still inconveniently adorning one of his arms he's going to need for this next bit. Antony, I'll need my arms free to get the chalice. Would you like to go about on your own, or do you still desire a lift? He asks in what he hopes is a leading sort of tone, and slants a look Warlock's way once he caught the prince's eye. Anthony, thankfully, catches on immediately and doesn't even look put out. Oh, I'm not a fan of mazes, he says, and looks over to Warlock. You up for giving me a ride, kid? Warlock's eyes round with barely suppressed excitement before he seems to catch himself and straightens up with a haughty sort of expression. It would be my great honor, your highness. Aziraphale bites back a smile and walks close enough to put a light hand on Warlock's shoulder, which Anthony uses to quickly transfer over, having to make several more rounds than usual to make himself a scarf on slimmer shoulders. Warlock practically vibrates with joy as he holds himself still through the whole process. Very good. Aziraphale praises, though feeling a little bereft seeing the prince riding on someone else's shoulders. His own feel disconcertingly bare. Shaking the feeling off, he turns and makes short work of tipping the chalice up carefully to dump out the water. After a stern admonition for the mug to relocate itself to the ground and the chalice is ready for transport. After careful consideration, Aziraphale arranges it so the white mouth rests against his chest and he can hold it up by the bottom lip with both hands. It's heavy and awkward, but he thinks he can manage until they reach the carriage. All right then, he says once he's satisfied with his grip, and he turns back to Warlock and the prince, who are staring at him with twin expressions of shock. What? That thing has to weigh at least eight or nine stone, Anthony says, almost accusingly. I'm not using magic, Aziraphale says defensively. No need to fuss. The prince makes a shrill-sounding noise in the back of his throat. Uh, you're awfully strong, Warlock says. Is it from wrestling manticores? Mom said Mrs. Messenger said that you wrestled a manticore the other week. I ran away from a manticore. Aziraphale corrects. Like any sensible person would. A manticore! The prince sort of shrieks coins flexing in agitation until Warlock sways under the weight and he freezes. Questing, Aziraphale reiterates, is dangerous. And he doesn't feel a jot of guilt when he hears how patronizing his voice sounds. Is that why you're gonna marry him? Warlock asks Anthony, like a dog with a matrimonial bone. Because he can wrestle manticores? Anthony forgets his preoccupation with Aziraphale's handling of the chalice 
to give warlock the most dejected looking expression he's ever seen achieved without eyebrows he's trying to fob me off on one of his siblings warlock obligingly gasps in shock no way they're a bunch of tossers he pauses and considers well i guess raphael and haniel are all right but the rest of them are jerks then he swings doleful eyes toward aziraphale that doesn't seem very nice uncle aziraphale and that's just a dirty pool he's never uncle unless the little ingrate wants to make him feel guilty or wants a favor anthony turns equally pitiful eyes aziraphale's way yeah doesn't seem very nice to me either he agrees sadly and Aziraphale narrows his eyes at him. I think, Warlock continues, with the way you are, marrying a snake might not be too bad, yeah? He's got really pretty scales, don't you think? He points to the red glimmer of the prince's underbelly, careful not to touch. I certainly think so. Anthony says demurely, the absolute wanker. And I'll bet he gets fantastic hugs. World-class hugger, me. And mom says you aren't getting any younger, which I don't really understand because you're like 90-something already and don't even have as many wrinkles as my nan, and she's got a boyfriend. Warlock. Aziraphale cuts in a little sharper than he means to and tries to soften it with a smile when the boy scowls at him. I appreciate you looking out for me. I truly do, my dear boy. But for one, Prince Antony isn't really a snake, and for another, you and I have spoken before at length about all the ways that compatibility isn't always so straightforward as the stories like to make it out to be. Warlock sighs in a way Aziraphale is sure is meant to convey how silly he thinks Aziraphale is being, and rolls his eyes. Whatever. I just think it'd be neat if you got happily ever after. That's all. The prince suddenly finds the ground highly interesting, and Aziraphale can hardly blame him. It's a sweet notion, but like many of the ballads, glosses over the messy reality of politics, duty, and the practicalities of life. I know, my dear, and I love you dearly for it. He adjusts his grip on the cellist pointedly. But in the meantime... This is very heavy, and I'd quite like to put it down. So, what say we head back to the carriage? The awkward silence lasts until the prince decides to put them collectively out of their misery, which Aziraphale rather sourly thinks is the least he can do after encouraging Warlock so abominably. So, Warlock, have you ever met any of Aziraphale's other kids? Oh, Good gods. Do you mean he actually has kids? Warlock demands, looking back over his shoulder at Aziraphale accusingly. Aziraphale rolls his eyes and shakes his head. Nah, not like kid kids. More like how he seems with you. Little ankle biters he looks out for and who look out for him too. He says the next with such magnificent nonchalance that Aziraphale wants to chuck the whole bloody chalice at him. Met a few over in Tatfield yesterday. 
whole gaggle of them who have a secret hideout, and a dog, and a gang name, and everything. Surprised he's never introduced you. Warlock works around to walk backwards, glaring fiercely at Aziraphale, who can only look back in resigned agreement. They're not the sort your parents would find improving company, he says, and then wishes he had the hands to facepalm himself. Of all the excuses he could have come up with. I want to meet them, Warlock says vehemently, as Prince Anthony attempts to hide a snicker into a fold of his own coils. Crawley has a half-form idea that if he can get the two kids in contact, he might be able to sort of fulfill the requirement to get the Fey Prince exposed to high society, and therefore successfully call on the court that his plan was to execute a triple bluff all along. Later, once they've secured the chalice, said their goodbyes to Warlock, and gotten back onto the road to return the carriage, Prince Anthony sidles up next to Aziraphale on the driver's seat, draping a loop of scales over his leg, like a human might lean an elbow on a friend's shoulder. Aziraphale squints down at him in suspicion. What did he mean, that you might like to marry a snake, with the way you are? Anthony asks, in an overly neutral tone that speaks to someone making a monumental effort not to lead to conclusions. I don't tend to get on with people, romantically, Aziraphale says, choosing his words carefully. That's why I'm trying to give you options. I believe Warlock thinks if it weren't a human on the other side of the equation. He trails off with a shrug, not sure where to go with it. On the one hand, Aziraphale thinks it's an overly simple way of looking at things, and an erasure of all the highly successful interspecies romances he's been witness to over the years. On the other, Aziraphale is uncomfortably aware that if he had any hint that the prince's lack of sexual overtures was due to nature and not his present circumstances, Aziraphale could see himself quite happily marrying Anthony, whether he ever regained his true form or not. So, no snake kink, then, the prince confirms, because he is an absolutely horrible creature. Had your hopes up, did you? Aziraphale returns coolly, and is gratified by the shocked hoot of laughter the response elicits.